Hampshire Hispites. Join us as we delve into the past and go on a journey to discover some of the county's best, and occasionally unknown, history. We'll be speaking to experts, as well as enthusiasts, asking them to reveal some of our hidden heritage, as well as share with you a few fascinating untold stories. Hampshire has been a hub of maritime activity for thousands of years. And with the remains of two of Henry V's great warships perhaps lying in the River Hamble, we thought it was a good idea to uncover the story of the King's Navy. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Hampshire Hispites. I'm Emily Briffitt and my guest today is Ian Freel, a local museum consultant, writer and maritime historian. Ian, can you give us a bit of context, perhaps a brief introduction to Henry V? Yeah, sure. A lot of people only know Henry V, if you know anything about him, is through the the Shakespeare play, which celebrated him as an ideal king. He was shown as principled, resolute, able to joke with uh, his soldiers and, and with a princess. And yeah, indeed, I think the real Henry was uh, brave, principled, resolute and pious, but I don't think he was humble in any sense. Apparently he didn't like people looking him in the eye, and he could be ruthless and indeed vengeful, despite his undoubted gifts as a soldier and uh, as a strategist, I think you hero worship him at your peril. And in my opinion, Shakespeare's Henry was a, a much better man than the real one. So as we're going to be talking about Henry V's navy, could you perhaps tell us what ships were like in the early 1400s more generally? It's In some ways, it's quite a simple question to answer, because in Europe at the time, in Northern Europe, broadly speaking, ships were clinker-built and one-mastered. Uh, clinker built means that the sh- hulls were composed of shells of overlapping planks, which are fastened at the edges by nails called, well, various things, but clench nails is one name that will do. And within that, the hull was held together by a frame, most of which was inserted once the shell had been built up. The one masters of the time carried a single four-sided sail, which was usually rectangular in shape, but it is known as a square sail. And um, these were sails that worked best with the wind from behind or from perhaps the side, although it did allow ships a limited capability to sail into the wind. And by the mid-14th century, there was a new type of ship, something the North Europeans came to call a carrack. It was a big ship by contemporary standards, up to maybe 600 tonnes, which was a lot for the 14th century. It had a huge square sail, but from the mid-1300s, carracks often carried a second sail on the mizzen mast behind the main mast, which carried a small lateen, which helped these vessels to manoeuvre. And the reason I'm going on about carracks is that they come to feature in the, the story of Henry V's navy. What about the king's ships? What were they like? The king's ships were quite literally the ships that belonged to the king. They were his personal property. So in wartime, they might often lead war fleets, but they were also used for other purposes. I mean, Henry's ships were used to escort convoys on the important wine route to Bordeaux and Gascony, for example, and carry cargoes themselves. Other ships were used for transporting VIPs, things of that sort. So it was not like a modern navy in that sense. Royal ships were known as ships of the Tower, meaning the Tower of London, because before Henry's time, and indeed through part of his reign, the royal ships were normally moored near the Tower of London. And it was a very, very small fleet. There was nothing in the way of a royal dockyard. And the funding was a bit intermittent. Henry, in point of fact, only inherited two ships from his father. But within a few years, he had one of those powerful fleets that medieval England had ever had. He's known as one of the few medieval English kings who really understood how to use sea power 
And he very clearly went on to use his fleet and other ships as a weapon in his war against France. And he knew how to deploy it, even if he never commanded a ship in battle himself. And by November 1417, he had 32 vessels, which was an amazingly powerful fleet on a European scale. And indeed, Henry's fleet was the most powerful royal fleet that England would see for another century. You have to go to the reign of Henry the Eighth, 100 years later, to see anything comparable. What sorts of ships did Henry actually have? It ended up being a very varied sort of fleet, and not all of it was English. England was not a great sea power in Henry's time, at least not when he came to the throne. There weren't that many big ships in the country, and the country also seems to have been short of sailors. But the types of vessels he had consisted of ordinary one-masted sailing ships, which you know, the source is just called ships. <laughs> so we can't always be certain about what shape they were. His forces later on went to capture some Genoese carracks, which was a huge coup, really, for the period. But alongside these, there were various oared fighting ships called bal- barges and ballingers. They were ships that could move under oar and sail, and they tend to be a lot faster than ordinary sailing ships for that reason. But they were very different because they used oars. They, they had to be quite low and long, so the oars could reach the water. And uh, as I say, they seem to have been quite fast. Alongside all these, Henry had four vessels called great ships, and each one successively was the largest ship in English history up until that time. He started with the Trinity Royal, which was rebuilt from one of his father's old ships between 1413 and 1415. The second one was called the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was 740 tonnes. Then the third of the great ships was built at a place called Small Hything, a bit north of Rye, and that was a 1,000 tonnes. It was called the Jesus and was launched in 1417. And the fourth of the great ships, called the Gracia, which means French grace of God, and that was a vessel of 1,400 tonnes, and there was nothing that big built in England, so far as we know, for the next century. You have to go to Henry VIII's time to find something comparable. The sheer scale of them is something quite incredible. So I think a name that comes into this story is John Hodgkin. I think he was one of Britain's shipbuilders. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about him? I always think that John Hodgkin is one of the country's great unknown engineers. We know next to nothing about him beyond the fact that he was a master shipwright who seems to have operated in the Southampton area. He was involved with the King's ships between around about 1415 and 1420 or so. He's known to have been in charge of the construction of one of the old fighting ships for Henry V, Ballinger, as I say, an old fighting ship called the Anne, which was built at Southampton in 1416. But much more importantly, John Hodgkin was the master shipwright who built the Grastia, which was an incredible piece of work. It was, say, took years to complete. We know from the, the remains of the ship that it was clinker built, but it was a very special kind of clinker building because of the size of the ship. In order to stop it falling apart as it was being built, they had to have three layers of planking. So each run of planking, each strake as it's called, had three layers of planking and then they overlapped. So when nails and iron nails and tree nails, wooden nails were being driven through the planking at the overlaps, they had to go through five thicknesses of planking. Every single one would have been pre-drilled almost certainly. So a long and slow job. And over and above that, Hodkin somehow conceived this enormous ship, which later was the biggest one that had ever been in England. Sadly, Hodgkin is almost forgotten. His achievement was all to building a very large church or even a small cathedral, really. And unlike cathedrals, his piece of work had to float, go to sea, carry a crew, and in theory at least, 
fighting battles, which it never did. But it's really, really sad, I think, that we know so little of him. You're talking about achievements on the scale of you know, Brunel in some ways, but unless someone finds some hitherto unknown documents, I don't think we're going to learn much more about him. It's nice to be able to share part of his story, at least. So from this, I'd like to move on slightly. Could you tell us a little bit about what sea warfare was like in the early 1400s? Ships going to war in the Middle Ages normally carried contingents of soldiers on them who were there to fight alongside the sailors. For the most part, the weaponry found on ships was similar to that used on land, swords, spears, axes, bows and arrows, crossbows as well. And the reason that all these hand weapons were used was because the only way of fighting against other ships for the most part uh, was by fighting boarding actions. Ships would crash together, they put out these huge iron grapnels to fasten themselves to the enemy, and then one crew would try to overwhelm the other by fighting hand to hand. And sometimes you find that pots of lime powder were chucked to burst on the enemy deck, so the powder would get in the eyes of the defenders. Sometimes ships were set alight, but in terms of sea battles, that was a desperate thing to have to do because one of the things you would get in a sea battle, if you captured a ship, you'd get money, prize money in effect, from capturing it. So it was worthwhile taking the ship reasonably intact if you could. But in uh, boarding actions like this, things thrown from top castle, even lobs of rock, but also particularly the iron gads, could be deadly. It was said that a gad could go through the top of the helmet of a soldier wearing armour and basically skewer him to the deck and go right through him. So the battles were undoubtedly bloody and nasty and very, very personal. And these defensive superstructures I was talking about, the castles, were part and parcel of that. Uh, Some of the Henry V ships actually acquired two-stage castles. They put additional stages on to give them more height because in a sea battle, the size of crew and the height of your ship were quite crucial advantages. If you could fire down on a smaller ship or had more men to overwhelm them, you had a better chance of winning. It sounds like a particularly dangerous form of warfare. Well, I think all warfare is dangerous, but this must have been particularly nasty. And you think these men were probably wearing half armour. And even if you weren't hit by a projectile or if you fell overboard, even if you could swim, your chances of not going to the bottom were probably nil. This brings us on more specifically to talk about Henry's war with France. So where does Hampshire fit into this story? When did it become important in Henry's plans for war with France? It's really a couple of years into his reign. For the first two years, most of the naval activity emanated from London, from the Thames. But aside from the building of the Holy Ghost, the royal ships would call into southern ports when they're escorting convoys and things like that. And there was quite a lot of that going on in the early years of Henry's reign. But it's only really from about 1415 that Hampshire started to become a key part, indeed the key part in terms of England in Henry's naval war. We can't be certain exactly when Henry decided to invade France, but he was very keen on the idea of making himself King of France as a dynastic claim, and indeed possibly obsessed by it. But the build-up of his fleet and the construction of things like the great ships, I think it's a sign that his mind was turning that way. He was having munitions made in 1414, and in 1415, he took the decision to take an invasion fleet to France. In the summer of 1415, a very large invasion fleet gathered in the Solent. And it was a fleet that wasn't just English. Because of the apparent shortage of ships in England, Henry went out and hired possibly 300 Dutch ships as transports, not as fighting ships, but as army transports, as he took an army of maybe nine, ten thousand 10,000 with him to France. And on 11th August 1415, the fleet sailed and 
from this, Henry was able to return home as a hero with a reputation as a great soldier. I know we're getting away from Hampshire a bit, but we're about to come back to it. So here he is being cheered to the rafters in London as he processes back in. But things started to go downhill in the following year. The French began to turn the tables on the English when it came to sea fighting. The French had something of a naval force, but they went out and hired vessels from the great Italian city port of Genoa. They hired eight oared galleys and nine big war carracks, ships of up to 600 tons, so they were very, very big indeed. And uh, the French and their allies began raiding the south coast of England. They burned settlements on the Isle of Portland and Dorset. And again, coming back to Hampshire, they raided the Isle of Wight and put in seaborne blockades of both Portsmouth and Southampton. They apparently destroyed some ships. And because the royal ships were quite a lot of them were concentrated in Southampton water, if the French had managed to get in and burn those, it would have been possibly game over for any English response. But by July 1416, the French blockades were lifted and Henry decided to put together a large fleet of both royal and private ships. They were formed up on the south coast, again, Hampshire playing its part, but the fleets were in different places and they were brought together off Beachy Head in Sussex in order to set sail for France with two of the great ships now, the Trinity Royal and the Southampton-built Holy Ghost leading it. They got to France and on the morning of the 15th of August 1416, the opposing fleets crashed together near somewhere near Harfleur. We don't know exactly where. The land's changed around there, for one thing, so it's possible the battle site is actually underground now rather than in the sea. But in the early morning on this day, the fleets started fighting. We've only got impressionistic accounts of the fighting. It's possible the English manoeuvred to get a greater advantage over the French and the Genoese. It's mainly the French and Genoese who were in the force opposing them, but we don't know. But... We do know that the fighting was vicious and very bloody with heavy casualties. It's said that all of the Genoese crews were killed, amongst other things. And on the English side, it's pretty clear from the records of the Holy Ghost that Bedford's flagship was actually boarded because it lost nearly half of the rigging that was supporting its mast. The fighting itself lasted certainly for hours and perhaps until the early evening. And at the end of it, the French and the Genoese had lost. The English captured three Genoese carracks, which is a real achievement in any battle, because carracks were some of the biggest ships going and they were difficult to take. And the English could declare a victory. The news got back to Henry when he was in Kent looking at the Jesus being built at Small Hive and he went to Canterbury Cathedral to have praises sung a Te Deum in thanks to God for his victory as he saw it. But it was, you know, like all of these battles, extremely brutal. It was said that the Seine estuary was filled with floating bodies for days after the battle had happened. Thereafter, the English and French concluded a treaty that ran for several months over the autumn and winter. But by this stage, Henry was pretty clearly plotting a second invasion because if he was going to make himself King of France, he had to do more than just win a naval battle and hang on to Harfleur. But the French still at this stage had a sizable naval force, including more of the Genoese alongside Spanish ships. And Henry put together another war fleet, which probably included the great ship Jesus, which was available from about the middle of 1417, and sent this fleet to France. They met the French and their allies of a headland just to the north of the Seine estuary called the Chef de Co. On the 25th of July 1417, and in a battle that lasted, in this case, probably no more than a few hours, they inflicted a shattering defeat. One of the French chroniclers talks about the English having big ships in their fleet, and that's probably a rather vague reference to the presence of the great ships, which were real assets. 
in the course of the battle, French sea power and that of the Allies had got with them was essentially broken. The English captured four more carracks and the way was open for Henry's second invasion. And, and this, I think, is one of the keys to understood the use of sea power because he crossed to France less than a week after the victory off the Chef de Caux and began his conquest of Normandy, which would last for the next three years and would lead to a treaty with France, a treaty in 1420 recognised him as heir to the French king, Charles VI, and gave him the hand of Princess Catherine of France. If French morale had been shattered by this, what did Henry's fleet get involved in between 1417 and 1420? It's easy from our perspective to think that, well, we know French sea power was broken by the Second Battle, and the French really couldn't recover at sea. And with Henry now ashore in France, things were going badly for the French. It's easy to think that the English were quite easy about what was happening around their coasts and what little sea warfare there was in the English Channel. But they weren't. For one thing, the French still had the Kingdom of Castile as an ally, Spain, and uh, Spain had naval forces. And there were recurrent fears that the Spanish would get involved and possibly even raid or perhaps even invade England. And so Henry kept sending out sea patrols. They were called, it was a process called sea keeping, you know, sort of keeping a fleet at sea to attack enemy shipping. They were capturing enemy merchant ships and so on, but there wasn't a lot in the way of major fighting, certainly nothing that seems to have been on the scale of the Battle of Harfleur and the one off the Chef de Caux. There was still activity, but partly because of the fear of attack. Again, Hampshire became particularly important for Henry's fleet because in November 1417, Henry or Henry's government started using the River Hamble in Hampshire on Southampton Water as a fleet anchorage. And the reasons, there are probably several of them. One of them, it was wide and deep enough to accommodate Henry's ships, both the big ones and the small ones. It offered shelter from storms, and that was quite important because in a separate action, the English had captured another Genoese carrack early in 1417, and they'd been repairing it in Southampton. But in that year, there was a storm, and the storm was fierce. And as one of the accounts said, it smashed the carrack against the walls of Southampton and wrecked it. And it was just you know, matchwood after that. So Southampton water itself was quite an exposed anchorage for a war fleet. And this helps to account for using the handle. But also, with its relatively narrow mouth compared to Southampton water, the handle was much easier to defend. And Henry started taking other defensive measures. He began defending Portsmouth Harbour. Most people have been to Portsmouth and have been around the seafront. They've probably been to the Round Tower, although it's much later rebuilding. That owes its origins to a tower that was started by Henry V in 1418. And around the same time, the English began building defences at the mouth of the Hamble. There was a wooden tower built there. The Round Tower originally was probably wood as well. But the Round Tower of the tower at the Hamble was called the Bulwark. It was meant to contain a military garrison that guard the mouth of the handball. They put in what were probably sharpened stakes to prevent small boats landing, but also a couple of big iron chains were laid across the river mouth. They were ones that to be raised when needed. And these were big chains. Each of them were 146 metres long. That's been huge and expensive, but the idea is you'd raise them and they would stop ships or boats getting into the, the river if you didn't want them to. So that was going on. The English were busy defending themselves. There were as I say, various patrols going out, but not much action. And then in 1420, in the spring of that year, the fleet was brought together, particularly the king's ships in this case, to mount a big sea patrol led by the Grass 
Tour, this huge ship. It was the only occasion on which the four great ships are known to have sailed together. So you have the Grastier, the Jesus, the Holy Ghost and Trinity Royal all mustered in Southampton water along with other ships. But it was all a bit of a fiasco. There was discontent of some kind. There was a mutiny amongst the soldiers on board the Grastier, and they forced the crew to put the ship into St Helens on the Isle of Wight. So here you have what was um, medieval England's most expensive weapon or weapon system, sort of going about as far as a, a white link ferry, or maybe a little further, but not much. And that's, as far as we know, is the furthest the Grastier ever sailed. The fleet thereafter, or the Royal Fleet, anyway, went back to the Hamble, and there it stayed. The sea war was, you know, there's nothing much for them to do. They carried on work on repairing and maintaining the ships. Some of them were sent out on voyages to Bordeaux, probably as convoy escorts, but also to carry wine cargoes. And then 1422, Henry V died. He caught a fever at a siege, and that was that. It wasn't quite the end of the story of Henry's navy, but it was close to it. There was his infant son, Henry VI. There was a royal council in place to look after the kingdom's affairs, and they didn't have the money to maintain a navy, and indeed there was no obvious need for it. Henry had built up his navy to use it as an instrument to invade France, and now there was nothing really for it to do. And in the three years after Henry's death, 19 of the royal ships were either sold off or given away, depending on their condition. And by the mid-1420s, only the four great ships and two Ballingers were left. They were moored in the Hamble. They were probably used to impress visiting foreigners because they were huge symbols of royal power. They were decorated. They had painted and gilding and all that kind of stuff. But also they were huge. And we know they did impress at least one foreigner because in 1430, there was a visit from a galley fleet from Florence. And the commander of this kept a diary and he records being wined and dined aboard the Grastier. And this was a man from a one of the most developed maritime economies in, in Europe. And he was absolutely blown away by the Grastier. He said something like, I've never seen so large and beautiful a construction. And he had the ship measured, and he was so impressed by it. So the ships were still serving a function, albeit a rather passive one. But at the same time, the ships were deteriorating. They were starting to leak. They even called in a diver, it must have been a Welshman, who was called Davy Owen, to dive underneath the Holy Ghost to try and stop up some of the cracks in the hull. But these were basically timber vessels, and time told of them. And 1426, the Holy Ghost was put into a dock. Uh, the Trinity Royal followed a few years after, then the Jesus. And eventually, in 1432, the only one that was really left in the Hamble was the Grastier, which was starting to leak. They took out some of the gear, cut down the main mast, but even that wasn't enough to help keep the ship afloat, because two years later, it was towed up river to Burzeldon, and uh, placed in a wet dock, which had been dug there. And that was almost it. Henry's fleet was basically starting to moulder away. But there was one sort of last significant event as regards the Grastier. It was 1434, it was placed in this dock. But nearly five years later, on the night of the 7th of January, 1439, the Grastier was struck by lightning and it caught fire and apparently completely burned out quite a strange and sad ending to such great ships really yes i mean it's possible that the holy ghost might lie somewhere near the grastier but that's yet to be excavated but maybe the remains of the trinity royal are somewhere down near hamble but we don't know where thank you very much for talking to me today it's been an absolute pleasure thank you very much emily i've enjoyed it and that brings us to the end of this week's episode 
If you're interested in finding out more about Ian and his research into maritime history, do check out his website at www.ianfreel.co.uk or follow him on Twitter at Dr Ian Freel. You can find these details and a link to his website in the show notes on the Hispites website. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. If you would like to find out a little bit more about what we've been talking about, then please visit the website www.winchesterheritageopendays.org or click on Hampshire Hispites and there you'll find today's show notes as well as some links to more information. Thank you. Thank you.